Today's guest on the podcast is Lisa Smith. She's an author, an attorney, and that's all I'm going to tell you. Usually I give kind of an intro about my guest, but I think this topic is so important that I just want you to listen and let it kind of reveal for itself what it's about. I think that many of us are struggling in this area. I think many of us know someone who, are, who is struggling, and I just want everyone to have an opportunity to hear this episode before making any judgments. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Lisa Smith. Welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast with Meredith Atwood. We all have the same 24 hours each day, and it's what we do with those hours that makes all the difference between our health, happiness, and success. Welcome to another episode of the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Atwood. Today's guest is Lisa Smith. Hi, Lisa. Hi, Meredith. Great to be here. Thank you. Oh, so glad to talk with you. So Lisa is the author of the book, Girl Walks Out of a Bar. And Lisa, I bought this book, I don't know, it had to be a year and a half ago, maybe two years, and I took it on a trip because it's, it, first of all, it has like the best cover <laughs> and, the, and the title's awesome. And I was like, I want to read this because I love drinking memoirs because of my yeah. my past. But I took it on the, on the plane on a recent trip and between where I was going there and back, I finished it. And the second I landed... I emailed the girl that, that I think contacted you, and I was like, you've got to get her on the podcast. This book was a riot. Um, oh, thank a riot you. And not a riot at the same time. So um, thank you, first of all, for writing it. I think the message, and especially in this day and age, is one that needs to be told. And um, so congratulations for being brave and stepping oh, out. thank you. Thanks. So let's talk a little bit about your story. And I heard you describe your sort of addiction and the recovery process is a 10-year slide. So let's talk a yeah. little bit about where you came from and your past and, and sort of the high level of, of what this book is about. Sure, sure. So I grew up in, uh, in New Jersey and, you know, very nice family, very nice town. Um, and, uh, my dad was a judge and, uh, I was one of these kids who I think, you know, similar to a lot of us that feel like, you know, I was always very self-conscious. I was always, you know, had this kind of gloom around me and a, and a little <laughs> bit of anxiety. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I saw growing up, it was the seventies. So, you know, no judgment here right. at all, but, um, you know, my parents, their ritual every night when my dad would get home, you know, from from court and after he played tennis and did whatever he did, he came home and the two of them, my parents would have cocktail hour. It was a normal thing. It was, um, you know, it was breaking out the J&B scotch and the Triscuit mm -hmm. crackers. Oh, and the Triscuits. <laughs> yeah. And like, you know, they'd let me put ice in the glasses, but I wasn't allowed to pour the scotch, but they would always, you know, clink and how was your day? And I, from a very young age, associated alcohol, um, with happy, relaxed, safe, even feeling mm -hmm. things were good when the alcohol was out. And, you know, I very much had my eye on that. Although food was the first thing that, you know, I think a lot of eight year olds like me, um, found, um, to sort of make some of those, those, um, uncomfortable feelings go away. But, um, you know, I never saw negative ramifications from drinking. I didn't know people who were arrested. They were, there was never fighting, yelling, nothing. They'd have these big parties. Everybody would be happy. Um, and my big party trick as a kid was to alphabetize all the bottles we pulled out of the liquor cabinet and show <laughs> off my handiwork to the guests. Um, as wow. a kid. But so, you know, what I realized quickly as soon as I started experimenting with drinking as a kid was that, um, you know, wow, this is what I thought it was. This does. It was like somebody flipped the switch where, you know, I went from being, you know, just uh, uncomfortable and with zero confidence to feeling like, hey, yeah, I, I fit in this world. I belong here. Um it was never like a liquid courage for me. It was more like a liquid indifference, you know, yes. it let me not, 
Yes, just, I like that. Yeah. That's what it is. Because I was, yeah, yeah, the whole time I was drinking, it, I was like, this is not courage. It's liquid no. indifference. I love that. <laughs> but that's, yes. you know, it made me not care anymore what other people mm-hmm. were thinking yeah. about me in a particular moment. And, you know, that was, or just not, not worrying. And, yeah. um, and so, you know, I always, the other thing I would say about this time was that, you know, I, alcoholism is, um, not contagious, but it does run in packs. So I found the kids in high school who drank and I was always a smart kid and I did well, but you know, I would blow it out on the weekends with the kids who drank and same thing. I went to college, I got into Northwestern, which, you know, of course, someone like me, I'm like, uh, they made a mistake when they let me in. <laughs> I'm still convinced of that. <laughs> I'm going to my 30-year reunion in October, and I'm still convinced they shouldn't have let me in. Well, that's how um, I feel about law school. I mean, yeah. I didn't really score very well on the LSAT, and I had good grades, and they let me in and gave me money to go. And I'm like, this was an administrative error. <laughs> Wait, isn't that only us? Yeah. I, I, I feel like, If we you were know... dudes, the dudes would not say that. <laughs> right. Right. What guy would ever say that? Never. None. <laughs> But so anyway, I found the kids who partied in, you know, I started doing some drugs. I, I started, but I always, you know, school was always first. Academics were always first. And, um, but I really, I mean, I was a blackout drunk by the time I got to college. Um, you know, there were not every time I drank, but enough times that I drank. Um, and then when I went to law school, I came, I, I, so I'd gone to Chicago for, college. And then I came back to New Jersey to, and I went to Rutgers to law school. And I did similarly did that. I found people who liked to party. If you didn't drink or if you were going to judge my drinking, I, I had wanted no part of you. Like yeah. there was, I would run. Let me just and take my liquid indifference over here and be without you. <laughs> that's right. If you tell me you're worried that you think I drank too much, yeah. I'll just not speak to you again. That's fine. Right. Yes. Um, so, uh, so then I, you know, unexpectedly did better than I thought in school. And uh, again, thinking it was a mistake, I got, <laughs> I landed the big prize, which was um, a job as a junior associate at one of the big New York City mega farms and moved into Manhattan. Um, and similarly, you can find friends who, you know, they're great friends. And the friends that I write about in the book are still my very dear friends. Um in fact, I performed the wedding for one of them a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. But um, that when I became a junior associate in a law firm and started working these crazy hours and feeling this pressure and this fear of, you know, this fear that I was this fraud that was going to be discovered and um, constantly, you know, feeling sad and anxious. That's when I started drinking every day. And so where does this fear come from? I was talking to my mom this morning and I, I expressed the same feeling that as a child, I always had this impending fear of imploding, of disappointing, of failing. I just lived in this little fear ball and yeah, I started yeah. thinking like right in college when I escaped the house, you know, to be my own person, which really I just then drank a lot and was a hermit. <laughs> so, I mean, it was totally, you know stupid but yeah there there was fear i mean and i i get that sense from a lot of people that have struggled with addiction there's an underlying fear of like everything yeah it's like that there's a there's a thing that runs through it that's sort of like an imposter syndrome like i really i am afraid i'm about to be discovered yeah, um of what I, like what are we <laughs> what are right we well it's i think it's part of that feeling that you know we always, like I know growing up, I felt like even when I did well, it wasn't good enough. Right. Um, it's a perfectionism thing. Mm-hmm. And if I don't see myself as perfect, how could you see me as anything less than or anything more than a failure? Right. Um, there are these expectations. And I don't know, you know, one of the things when I got sober, I'm sure we'll talk about is that um, I was diagnosed with this underlying major depressive disorder. Yeah. And I think part of whatever the tweaks in my brain are that I now treat with antidepressants uh, under doctor supervision um, that, you know, needed to be addressed, um, it's all part and parcel of the same kind of feeling that, um, you know, somehow there's something wrong with me. I'm not good enough. I don't fit in. 
And I don't feel as I, I've lost a lot of that feeling with mm-hmm. the, um, you know, with, with treating this whole thing appropriately. Yeah. And alcohol is just, I think it's like our first taste at self-medicating, you know, oh, it's, it's definitely, like, yeah, it's the Actually, first thing that gets relief right, from whatever. Mm-hmm. Mine was food, actually. Oh, yeah. I was. Whoops, I forgot about that. <laughs> that one's been part of me for so long. I just assumed that one. Right. I, yeah. I feel that way with a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. That, like, you know, and frequently when I hear from people about the book, they identify um, more with the food thing than well, you than. Didn't eat much though, did you? Well, I did when I was a kid, and I got. I and the thing I used to do was I was. And I didn't even know why this was doing, why I was doing this. This is what it, what it looked like for me was that at some point I found out that, or I realized that when I ate sugar, like a yodels were my, my first thing of choice. Um, but ho-hos or devil dogs or anything would do. <laughs> um, yeah. I found that they, somehow I felt good after I ate them. I didn't know I was getting a giant hit of dopamine. And so, um, what I used to do was take them out of the bread box in the kitchen and I'd go up to the bathroom and lock the door in the upstairs bathroom, sit down, lean against the tub and just sort of shovel them. And I felt better. And I realized now looking back on it as an eight year old kid, I had this, I had the awareness of, of something being not normal about that, that to take it into the bathroom and lock the door because I couldn't go eat them in my room because there was no lock on the door. And what if my mom walked in? Girl, we have got, a, you're like my long lost sister. I used to take <laughs> them into the pantry and shut the door or actually there was no door on the pantry then. My parents had a house fire and had it rebuilt. There's a door now, but there would, you could like sit in the pantry and not be seen and so i would sit on this little stool that was and it had paint droppings on it because my dad used to use it for like handyman stuff around the house i remember (laughs) this stool and i swear my parents still have it but i would sit in there and eat well it depended on the time of year if it was girl scout cookie time i would get the samoas and i would chew them i would put so many in there Those were so my favorite. Yes. People like the Thin Mints, but they no. weren't enough for me. No, they have no, to No, with, with the, the caramel yes. and the chocolate. They're sweeter. They're just sweeter. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, so I would hide those. And my dad was a, or still is like a junk food-aholic, right? But it yeah. was okay for him to eat it. Yeah. But not me. And I knew that. And, I, and just like you said, yeah. it's bizarre that from a young age, we knew that. Yeah. It, isn't it like there was something we knew there was something wrong with it, but mm-hmm. we did it because it provided relief. Yeah. And that's, wow. you know, later that was alcohol for me. So after you got sober and we'll, we'll get into that, but did you go back to eating? <laughs> um, you know what I did? It's funny. I said, if I'm not drinking, I'm eating whatever I want, whenever I want. That's yeah. just, that's just how it's going to be. And I did. I was eating pizza. I was eating ice cream. I was eating literally what I wanted when I wanted. And I still lost weight because I was no longer consuming like 2000 calories in wine a day. Mm -hmm. And I lost like the bloat. Yeah. And I think I had just been like really, um, I, I, it ended up being fine. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but, but there's no way, even if it hadn't been fine, I would have kept eating because I, I was whatever had happened, the one thing I had to do each day was not drink. Right. And, and you I know what I did? People. I smoked. I smoked. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And that's what I tell anyone that's trying to quit. If we have a conversation, I go, you do whatever it takes. Right. I say, you smoke your cigarettes. You, yeah. You know, don't do, you probably shouldn't do the cocaine. But, no, well, no, you no, know, no, no. that needs to go too. <laughs> but, you know, if you need to to eat a pint of ice cream. Like I had one girl that I worked with and I was like, a pint of ice cream a day is fine because yeah, it's a sugar addiction too. And that's what you oh, realize. Yeah. Like people that have alcohol addiction, they say, well, I'm not addicted to sugar. Yeah, you are. You're just yeah. getting your fix from alcohol. So when that's you go right. off just... alcohol, you need the sugar <laughs> for a little yes. bit. Yeah. 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 No, I, I, I was not. I Pepperoni on the pizza, <laughs> extra pepperoni. Like that was fine, whatever. And yeah. You know, all that matter. And I remember they, my, um, I am in a 12 step program and I got a sponsor very early. Uh, I still have the same sponsor 14 years later. And, uh, she said to me, 
do not try to quit smoking for the first year. Just don't do it. And I was more than happy to follow that advice. And then I got like 10 months into sobriety, I got a bad case of bronchitis. And I remember sitting on the apartment in my kitchen. It's so funny because now that I say it, I was sitting like in the same position, but in my kitchen propped up with my back against the stove that I used to do with the bathtub as a kid with the chocolate. And I was trying so hard to suck in the cigarette smoke. Like I I was trying so hard to smoke and I could not get the smoke in my lungs with the bronchitis. (laughs) And then for three days I couldn't smoke. And after that I was like, Oh no, like I'm never going to get three days without a cigarette again. Now I got to try to quit. (laughs) (laughs) So that was how I inadvertently, you know, took on quitting smoking, but I would never tell somebody if it's a choice, I still feel like a cigarette is something that stands between me and a drink. And that's fine. I would take myself to get a cigarette, to get a pack of cigarettes and smoke one if I ever felt like I was maybe going to drink. Yeah. Oh, I agree with you. I agree. And I think I I told someone who was newly sober that was trying to quit smoking too. I said, look, just get your smoke, all 20 of them (laughs) in the back and then go get, you know, but do it within 10 minutes. You have to smoke all of them in 10 minutes and then you can go get booze and, you know, but whatever it takes, because it's, it's the one thing, like what is the one thing that is going to kill you. And for me, it was booze. And so, I mean, cigarettes may kill you down yeah. the road, but yeah. oh, yeah. you got to deal with the Im- imminent danger. Right, right. And the misery. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. So one of the parts of the book that I really, <laughs> well, lots of it was very familiar. I never did drugs. And the only reason, and this is some, some drunk person logic for you, mm-hmm. um, the only reason I never tried cocaine was because I knew it would, I would love it. Mm-hmm. I knew it would make me super productive and skinny. And I knew <laughs> that if it did those things that I would never be able to quit. <laughs> oh, that's so, so funny. That's why I never did it. And then I had this joke with someone in my law firm from many years ago. I was like, so we should get addicted to cocaine <laughs> and then we'll be skinny, but then we'll go to rehab, which will be like a vacay. And then everyone will be <laughs> so proud of us that we quit our addiction. So then we'll be skinny and everyone will be proud. And I was like, that's not really a good plan. <laughs> oh my God. That's hilarious. But that, I mean, but that know, is how we think. Yeah. That is how we think. Yeah. And, and I remember thinking, you know, but what's funny is when you get very heavily into cocaine and the alcohol as well, the bloat wins out over the, uh, uh, over the skinny factor. Cause your body's just like, what are you doing? Your body's just like, what are you doing to me? I'm going to hold on to anything I can. Right. Right. And I remember one part of your, of your book where you, I think you were new in the law firm and you got sent somewhere, maybe not exotic, but beachy and you were poolside. And at the end of the day, you got your bill and it was like 12 coronas. <laughs> yeah. And you're like, did I really drink? It was like a Caesar salad and 12 <laughs> yeah. coronas. And I was like, oh, that sounds familiar. <laughs> right? Yeah. Like nothing. Like I just laid there all day and it was just one after the other. Oh, uh, too. Like that was such a nice juxtaposition. I, oh, and I'm sure I ordered dressing on the side. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Of course. So let's talk about the downward spiral. Like mm-hmm. where did it – everyone likes to ask me, okay, like how bad was it? Because people want to, to – well, I have a couple of theories. I think some people want to see where I was and decide that their bad habits of drinking are not that bad. Therefore, they don't have a problem. <laughs> and yes. then I, I yes. do think people just like the, you know, the freak factor, like, oh, my God, can you believe she did all that? But for me, yeah, yeah. at – my worst, it was probably two bottles a day of wine, and usually, and it depended on whether I went out to dinner. If I went out to dinner, it would be a martini or two, and then two bottles of wine. So, how yep. bad did it get for you? Well, that's very similar to where I was. Oh, um, Samoa cookies, martinis, wine, yeah. and cigarettes. Well, yeah, like, <laughs> like I had an estimate. I remember when I when I so the way it spiraled for me um, was that. I, I started, I had never really drank alone, um, until I started practicing Well, and I would come home, I'd get home late at night and, you know, I would always try to drink with somebody else, but, you know, so I could tell myself it was social. Right. Um, but then I had to, you know, just, I had several justifications, but if I came home, you know, usually I would get home, it was pretty late and I'd be like, I got to go to bed and, 
uh, and so I can get up early and exercise because I got to be at the gym at six. And so I would just, that's how I would knock back a couple beers just standing in front of the refrigerator door. And then I would realize that I was coming home and I was, I would like pour a glass of wine for myself, even when it wasn't that kind of a night, because I'd be like, well, my parents had cocktail hour and I'm not married. So this is just their, me having cocktail hour. Right. And then it went from two glasses to four, three to the bottle. And then it was like waking up in the morning and having to see if I opened a second bottle. And that was fairly early on. Um, but I justified everything with, you know, I don't drink during the day until then, probably about three years into that, I started finding people who were interested in drinking at lunch. So I did start drinking during the day. And this is craziest. This is my, my justification for that was, well, you know, drinking during lunch, like it, in France, everybody drinks at lunch. It's totally normal. It's totally normal. And Americans are so uptight. I don't get it. So I love it. In that France. was right. And so then I said, but I'll never, uh, I'll, at least I don't drink in the morning. I said, I might be. At that point, I was certainly like, okay, I'm probably a functional alcoholic, but emphasis on functional. I'm not like a real alcoholic, like the people who drink in the morning because I was I've never drink in the morning. And then years later, I had a hangover that I could not even pick my head up. And I was pretty heavily into cocaine by then because the cocaine helped me work. Exactly. Like you said, mm-hmm. so um, I knew it. Oh, totally. That's, it wasn't <laughs> for fun. It was for getting through and yeah. dealing with the day. Um, and so I woke up and this hangover was just, you know, I wouldn't have normally gone into the office, but I had to be in because I had a meeting with my boss and I knew the, I was so sick. I was like, the only, I know the only thing that's going to save me from this is a drink right now. Oh, is this I was the, shaking is this so the bad. one when you had like the meeting? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I didn't put this part in the book, but like, <laughs> but I, I, so that morning I pulled out the bottle. And I was like, I know what I'm doing. I know what this is right now. It's terrible. I'm, I'm, you know, this is who I am. And I owned it. But at the same time, there was a piece in my brain that literally said to me, but it's lunchtime in France right now. So I'm not really drinking alone. <laughs> I love it. France Seriously. is excuse. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. It so, makes sense to me. You know, totally. Yeah. So that was, so once that started, then, you know, the cocaine really ramped up because it was the only way I could get through the day and continue to show up for what I was able to work from home a lot, which was huge. If I had had to be in regular hours, I would have got, you know, somebody would have identified the issue long before. <laughs> and, um, but you know, when I, when I would manage around when I had to actually be in the office, but I would have to use the coat to straighten me out from the effects of the alcohol. I would have to drink in the morning to stop the shakes, but then I would get a little slurry and a little woozy because I would drink almost a bottle of wine in the morning. And then, yeah, so I guess I did get worse than the two bottles, (laughs) but, um, (laughs) but you're like, wait, AM or PM two bottles. (laughs) Yeah. It's funny. My husband, he drinks, I met him in Sprite and he is a civilian. And, uh, if he has two drinks, he's wasted. I'm like, that's not even breakfast. Right. I don't know what you're, what right. you're doing there. Right. Um, but anyway, but so the cocaine was like, what would keep me going? It became 24 seven, like for the last 18 months, that was really the bottom. Once the cocaine came in heavily, it was 18 months until I checked in. You said you were circling the drain. On, yes. I think it was on Megan Kelly. I saw you. Yeah. That is yeah. such a great description. But that's what it was, yeah. right? It was only like if someone had taken a look, it would have been, you know, the equivalent of turning the faucet on and just flushing me down that drain, <laughs> you know, in the sink. So, so I know when I was really heavy into drinking, I was convinced no one knew. And and I, I de- definitely detect that as a theme, you know, where how are you so functioning? How do you do your job? And how did you do? And for me, I did Ironman triathlon. I haven't done an Ironman as a sober person, you know, and it's like, how did you do Ironman as a drinker, but you won't do it sober? And I think that it's a dumb idea now. And that's why I did it as a drinker. But, um, you know, how did did people know you had a problem? You know, we think we fooled everyone. My mom knew Um, I'm 
I've never really asked other people. I I don't really want to know the answer. I have enough yeah, yeah, adults yeah. around it. But yeah, sure. You, yeah. you still work, and you still work with some of these same yeah. people. Like, did not they the know? same people at the, oh, not at the, the same time. People. I did okay. move because it was amazing. Once I got sober, I could suddenly handle a bigger job that had more <laughs> responsibility. And like a year into sobriety, I moved jobs. Okay. Um, but no, I never, I never. So what I always say because no one ever said a word to me. Um, I used to sit, I wrote about it in the book, I would sit in these partner meetings at 830 in the morning, and I'd have been using because there was no way I could show up without it. And I'd be thinking somebody else here must have because it can't just be me. Um, but no one ever said anything. I got a, 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 you know, I got a good raise in bonus the month before I checked in. And, um, and but I always say, I don't know what people said behind my back. You know, I don't know if people were like, oh, Lisa never shows up anymore or Lisa, you know, always smells like booze or anything like that. Um, But I know that it's it's interesting. I don't know. There was a bit if you I don't know if you saw it. There was a big article last August about um, almost a year ago on it was it was a New York Times cover on the business section called uh, The Lawyer, The Addict. Yes, I actually wrote a blog about that. Oh, I was you like, did? Oh, yeah. that's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so I was interviewed for that article, and I spoke to the reporter several times. And then, so when it came out, you know, I had okayed every, what, whatever. She, you know, they don't run anything by you, but I was fine with everything I had said. And that was one of the questions that she had asked me, and I answered that way. You know, I don't believe anyone did, um, but I can't say for sure because I don't know what people might have said behind my back. So the next paragraph after that quote is her interviewing the managing partner of the firm I had been at saying, did you know? Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was like, as soon as I saw that in the next paragraph, I was like, <gasps> you know, oh, they scary. went to them. Yeah. What, and what he said, they? well, it was great because actually they had one of my friends at the firm who, um, a partner there who I worked with very closely, who did not know once it all came out. She had me, or she arranged to have me come in, and I spoke to the firm. That was probably the the most um, stressful sort of uh, speaking engagement I've had on this stuff. Um, but I went back to that firm, and I spoke to the lawyers and the staff about the story. Um, you know, and I because I speak at a lot of law firms now about mm-hmm. you know this issue. It's a, and it is a big issue now, and so. Um, so he said, the managing partner, when he was interviewed for the New York Times story, said, um, no, we didn't know uh, at the time she was here, uh, but we had her come back to the firm to speak to our lawyers and our staff, and it was really eye-opening, and we don't want anyone to go through that alone again. So nice. it was actually really good, you know? Um well, I had a similar story from my managing, well, she wasn't a managing partner, but she was my direct partner uh, that I reported to. But after I wrote about, I was quitting drinking. I think I wrote my, I kind of outed myself after 90 days. I think I didn't say anything until 90 days. Uh-huh. And I was still at the firm. I was still working. And she wrote me a similar sentimented email, like just saying, I wish I had known so you didn't have to go through yes, that alone. Yes. I'm like, wow. Like, is right? this real? Is this how pe- do people really think that nicely? <laughs> you know, are they that nice? And then they, oh my they gosh, are. they did. They do. Yeah. The, uh, the people, that's one of the things that's like been, you know, people here. So I came here to the firm I'm at now um, and I'm on the administrative side. Um, I came here about, like I said, about a year into my sobriety. So a long time ago, like 13 years ago, but, and I was, I always kept working. So, um, you know, people here, I didn't come in and tell people I was sober or I was not sober or anything. I just came in and I wrote the book over the course of 10 years in the mornings. I would get up early and that was my writing time. And then I went to work and I joined, you know, over the years I did writing workshops and took classes and did all this stuff. So people here knew I wrote and they knew I was working on a book. Um, (laughs) But it's funny because they would ask me what it's about. And I would say it's memoir and it's about, you know, something difficult I went through and I just think it could help somebody else. And people say, Oh, that's great. Oh, that's good. I can use that one. I'm going to take all your quotes. Alcohol runs in packs, liquid indifference. I'm writing about something hard. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. So, so that's, yeah. And, and so then, but then I got the book deal and I'd been here like 10 years and I knew some people knew because I'd confided in them or I'd talked to them 
and gotten to know them obviously on a friend level, but most people did not. And so I had to, you know, basically announce to the firm, guess what? You know, I'm an alcoholic drug addict in recovery and I wrote a book out about it and it's coming out. And, um, you know, I was terrified because I had to go, you know, I didn't have to, but I did, I went sort of office to office and like, but you know, I started with the most senior person and went down and I have to say what was so incredible and why I knew that I had nothing to be afraid of speaking up and that, you know, this really was something that could hopefully help people was that every day, almost every time, not a hundred percent, but almost like 85% of the time I would tell my story or start to tell the story. And I, they would interrupt me and say, Oh, my brother, my law school roommate, my cousin, everybody knows somebody and everybody I got zero response of like some sort of negative judgment. Like I was afraid of. Yeah. Yeah. That's really awesome. So tell me about the day the book came out and you knew everyone was rushing to buy it at your work. (laughs) Well, I'm taking a vacation now. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Well, it was funny because before that I had, you know, in the lead up to the book, um, the way I really had to reveal myself fully to the firm was, you know, I, I had, um, talked to a bunch of people, but then, um, before the book was coming out, it was about three months, you know, and basically a lot of times I talked, I would talk about it as people know I was in recovery. Um, about three months before the book came out, um, there was this huge study done by the American Bar Association and Hazel and Betty Ford about the prevalence of substance abuse and mental health issues among, uh, practicing lawyers. And so it was a big deal. And I sent it to my publicist and I said, this is going to be good for the book. And she called me and she said, you need to go home tonight and you need to write the op-ed on this study because you are the face of this study. Mm-hmm. And I did that and she got it placed actually in the Washington post. And so the next day there was this like Google breaking news thing. Everybody here Googles the name of the firm and it would pop up like, the most terrifying part of my drug addiction that my law firm would find out. So I didn't even really, cause they, I didn't know exactly when it was going to run or what. Right. It, so it was, you know, kind of like, uh, not only here it is, but it starts, you know, that, that op-ed starts the way the book does, which is I was getting ready to go to work at my law firm and I'd done a bunch of drinking and blown a bunch of lines and here I go out the door, you know? Right. So, um, I think people might've thought I had like, you know, I don't think anybody's bottom or anybody's story is pretty, but I think they might have thought I had a, a prettier bottom. <laughs> like, oh, I thought maybe that meant just three glasses of wine a night. Like, right. no, I'd right. still be drinking if I could do three glasses of wine exactly. a night, probably. If I could drink two glasses of wine, I would oh, yeah. still drink. Yeah. yeah, I can't do that. So I can't drink. Yeah. So what did telling your truth mean to you? Like, relief, <laughs> relief. Yeah. I, you know, I had been hiding. So I've been lying to people just left and right. Like all the lies you have to yeah, tell you about when your brother had the baby. Oh God. So yeah. I was panicked for you reading that part. Like when you, <laughs> like when you were in the car trying to get the, just tell the story. Tell yeah. It. So yeah. Good. Well, well it was, so I was really, it was about, um, it was less than a year before I got sober. It was in July of 2003 and I got sober in April 2004 and my I have one brother who's two years younger than me also a lawyer and he and his wife um were expecting their first child who's now my niece and um I had used I would use any excuse to be like I'm I'm working from home so I had used when when we were sort of on baby watch um first grandchild first everything um they lived in New Jersey and I was in in the city and I had said, you know, I'm going to be working from home because I may need to run, you know, with whatever I'm doing and, and go out to the hospital. If this is all going on, I feel like I need to be there. And everybody said, fine, you know, do that. Um, and uh, so but what happened was it didn't really wasn't really happening. And so I ended up spending two days alone in my apartment, just like pulling the blinds, locking the door you know, breaking out the drugs, drinking. And I had been on like, by the time the baby was calming, like came, I was, had been on a two day bender and I tried, I was like, okay, I'll be there. And 
I tried to get myself together. That story in the book is like literally those, that time that I spent trying to get myself into a position to be, um, to show up at the hospital, uh, with everybody else and just the work it took. Like I was no longer like standing up in the shower. I'd have to sit down in the shower. You know, like I looked like a ripe, an unripe banana or like an overripe banana. Like I would, I had bruises, you know, you bruise so easily when you're drinking a lot. Yeah. And, um, because you're always bumping into things. You don't remember how. Right. (laughs) Right. And I was worrying. So I was so like sort of strung out and stressed out about how am I going to pull this off? How am I, as my mother, is my makeup going to be okay? Let me pull the least ratty, the least stained black thing out of my closet to wear. Um, you know, it was all like how I was going to try and and pass off. And then I ended up having to take with me the last bit of drugs that I had, last bit of cocaine I had into the, I called a town car, like the, the car service to take me out to the hospital. And I get in and I'm like, I got to do these drugs or I'm not going to appear normal. And I'm, so I'm like in the backseat behind the, the, the car service driver, like, like, he didn't know. <laughs> so I'm like making these ridiculous noises, trying to, to get the drugs up my nose as fast as I could. And then I realized like at, at the same point that I looked at myself and I realized like what I thought was like a pretty put together look that I had managed there was actually like they were going to immediately admit me into the ER if they right. saw me looking the way I looked. And I had been trying to get hold of my dealer to get more drugs the whole time. And he hadn't been calling me back. You were in the car. You were going to meet him, right? Well, what happened was, yeah, as I realized what a disaster I was, he finally called me back. And I, like, lunged at the phone. And he was like, yeah, I can be there in 20 minutes. And I was like, okay. And I said to the guy, turn the car around. We're going back. And I I went and met my drug dealer instead of showing up at the hospital. Isn't it remarkable, like, how much effort it took as a drinking person, as a user to just do the most mundane Oh things. my gosh. Like it you was said, standing in the shower that in, when you recovered, that was one of the things I noticed in the chapter when you said you were sober, like you could stand in the shower for the first time in a long time. Yeah. And uh, like one of the things I discovered in, in detox, I checked myself into a, a really bad, um, psych hospital because I didn't know what I was doing. And, uh, in detox, I realized I had no pajamas. Like I used to just like pass out in it, whatever I was wearing or naked or whatever it was. And I, you know, when my friends were packing me to go to detox, all I had were some like lingerie type things that I'm sure no one wanted to see me at the end of the night. <laughs> not in detox at least. <laughs> well, not even at where I was at at that point, boy. So, um, I, but I had no pajamas to take. And so when I got, now I have like this massive stash of pajamas because I can, like, that was one of the little things that like, I got out of detox and I was like, I need to buy pajamas because I'm going to start going to bed instead of passing out. <laughs> I'm going to start going to bed. I'm going to start going to sleep now. We do that in I, France. They, I'm going to yeah, do that. To people are sleeping France. in France right now. Right. That's right. <laughs> That's so. amazing. That's amazing. I, one of the things that I started to do as a sober person was wash my face. Yes. I'm like, how did I not wash my face for two Oh days? my gosh, me too. Yeah. Because and you know what I justified it all the time because somewhere once I had read that it's okay to not wash your face at night, like some article somewhere said it it's really magazine. overrated. It's re- probably in France they don't wash their faces right. before they go to bed. Whatever it was, and I was like, okay, that's that's not a problem. But I mean, yes, yeah. and now I'm like, it's now it's one of the first things I like to do when I get home. Get your I'm like, on. Oh, it feels clean. Right. Yeah. Anything that feels clean was new to me. Wow. Wow. I mean, why is it that in addiction we will find any excuse we can to justify our bad behavior? Like, what is going on? What have you found, like, in 14 years sober? I mean, that's a long time. Like, what have you found is the reasoning behind – why? Why did we – you know, in France, they're drinking. What what is it? What? Why? (laughs) I – I, I think, I mean, for me, there was so much fear around it, right? Like, I knew as I spiraled down, like, the the justifications and everything were because I couldn't imagine what it looked like on the other side. 
Yeah. Like I had never not been a drinker. I had never hung out with not non-drinkers. I had not grown up in a house with people who didn't drink. I literally didn't know what it was like. And it was scary. And it sounded, you know, I had this bad impression of the people in recovery. Like there were all these depressed people in, in dark clothing, like drinking bad coffee in a church basement. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I had no idea. I, I have had, I thought I would like never have fun again, never laugh again. I've had a, a, my biggest belly laughs have been in recovery. Sure. Like it is, it is just, you know, I didn't, I, I was afraid people wouldn't want to hang out with me. I was afraid my friends wouldn't want to hang out with me. I was afraid people in my office would think I was somehow weak or defective or unreliable. Um, so it was fears left and right. I think that kept me in that because it certainly wasn't like I was having fun. You know, sometimes people are like, Oh, the party had to end sometime. I'm like, I don't know what party you were at, but this <laughs> has sucked, sucked for like, this is party has sucked for 10 years. Yeah. Right. Right. And the fear, you know, some, there's some quote somewhere and I always screw it up, but the fear, when the fear of changing or the fear of something, something, in other words, you had to change because the fear was you were going to die. Yes, yes. <laughs> so you might as yes. well change because the fear right. for dying was the greater fear, than the, yeah. the fear of not changing was greater than the fear yes. of changing. I yeah. Don't know why that quote? That's probably some alcohol brain damage for whatever reason that I can't <laughs> do that quote. I'm I mean, always expecting the brain every time I forget something. I'm like, up oh, the brain damage. There's the yep. That's the martini talking. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So what is sober life like? I I know from. When I was circling the drain, I was so scared of what being sober meant. I was so scared to say, I will never drink again. Yes. And when I finally did that, when I finally said, I'm circling the drain. If I don't do, if I don't quit drinking, I'm going to die. I, and therefore, I can never do this again because mm-hmm. I've, proven, I've proven the experiment to myself over and over again. Yes. That I was yes. incapable of moderating. <laughs> like, <laughs> I knew that experiment had been tested and I failed. So I knew I had to quit and I could never do it again. And I was terrified. Yes. But yeah, I actually, I had to do it. And, and, and then did you find relief? Cause I felt like the weight of the world had been lifted off my shoulders once I could finally own it and say, I need help. I'm I can't drink. I'm killing myself. I found that people that don't have that certainty about right. they can't drink again. You know, I told you I, I have this sobriety group. It's called Grateful Sobriety. So anyone that's interested, come join. Um, but the people that join the group and they're like, I think I have a drinking problem. I don't know what I want to do about it. Mm-hmm. The You see, and, and then like the sober warriors who are 20 years sober, like, no, you just got to quit. <laughs> you yeah, you yeah. can't do it again. Like we know because it's that decision that has to be made Yes, that you just will never do it again. But we are all so terrified of that decision. Do you have an opinion? Why? I, well, I, yes, I think anything, anything sort of final like that has been too scary for me. I, I have always said, you know, I've never, I've never said I will never drink again, even though that's what I truly believe and what I plan to do. I, I just, I always say I'm not drinking today. Because right. it all depends on today. Because if I literally think, I, like I have friends in recovery who are like, I'm going to drink when I'm 85. That helps me stay sober today. <laughs> so while I know I can never drink again and I can never drink safely again, if I if that seems too scary and too onerous, because it just seems like, um, you know, we used it as a crutch or I used it as a crutch. And to say I can never have a crutch again can be hard. And mm-hmm. for all the reasons um, in any day when I think too hard about, well, you know, is this do I really want to say I'll never drink again? Just being able to say, you know what, just not today. I'll deal with it tomorrow. Yeah, always has gotten me through. That's good. And I think it might be a personality type, too, that, that someone needs to just say not today. Yes. Yeah. 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 And also for me, I need to know, like I'm a control freak. So <laughs> for me to be like, never again was what yeah. I needed, you know? And that's what I believe. And that's what I'm working towards. I, I feel, I feel like, um, I, for some reason it's always felt too onerous to sort of say I'm never drinking again. Yeah. 
And I think that's a, a lot of people. I hear that a yeah. lot. There, you know, you just can't. Well, it, you're also setting yourself up for a possible failure, right? Because if you say, I'm not going to do this ever again, and then you do, wh- what does that do to your psyche? Like all of a sudden you're playing the same role of eating the Samoas in the bathroom at age yeah. eight. Well, and that, failed again. Yeah. And that's, that's also why I was afraid to tell people, like you said, you told your office at, at 90 days. That's that's pretty big. Like well, I, I read it was on my terrified. Blog read it. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Because I w- I wasn't public at that point at all. Because I was like, what if I pick up? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I I was afraid of that. So, well, but you know, I think what had happened is I had had so many quote unquote relapses at that point mm-hmm. because I had tried to quit so many times and I and I didn't. Tried and quit and tried and quit. Never with the absolute certainty I had that last time, though. And I didn't have a rock bottom at that time, but it was coming. And I had a rock bottom a year prior, kind of like kind of like you did, really. I mean, how you kind of hit the bottom and then kind of came back up. And yeah, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was. And like you said, like I think what defines rock bottom for any person is, is what you described and what I feel happened to me, which was like, because people say like, I knock on wood, I haven't said knock on wood. I haven't relapsed in 14 years. I was done when that, when that came around. Like I, I wasn't getting sober because somebody threw me into a, you know, detox or I would, you know, I was going to lose my job and I was mandated. I think you have to be at that. I'm done. I, I, mm-hmm. I truly feel done. Yeah. And that's what happened for me. I, I yeah. actually planned my done date. And um, <laughs> that, I knew. Talk, maybe you are a control freak. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean, Lisa? <laughs> no, I did. Like, it was like a Wednesday. And we had an office party <laughs> for my husband on Friday night. And I was like, Friday night, is I am done drinking forever. And I went and it was weird because, you know, the prior me would be like, you're going to go get trash. This is your final. Yeah. This is it. And I might have drank the least at that party that I had drank in 10 years. Right. Right. You'd made the decision. I was like, I'm done. And then I I did not drink the next day. And I went and ran a half marathon on Sunday. Oh, my God. Felt like shit. I mean, I just because. My body, obviously, you know, I always tell people you can't believe anything that happens in the first two weeks over because it's just no. a oh, disaster. No. no, yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, on the on Librium when I went into the hospital because um, because of how bad, like the how long I had been drinking nonstop. You know, I had to be medically detoxed for five days mm-hmm. because you can have um, you know, seizures and there's risk and everything. So the first, I don't, I don't think I, I don't know how I would have gotten through those first five days because I felt like before I took the Librium, I felt like my head had been like slammed into a bed of nails. Yeah. It was bad. And the shakes. I I had the shakes. So I never quite got the shakes, but (laughs) this this is, this is some French drinking logic for you. Um, I was sitting up in bed, we were watching TV and, the fingers on my left hand started shaking and I looked over to my husband and I was like, do you think I have Parkinson's? Oh my God. And he was like, no, I think you're a drunk. And I was like, Oh, you're an asshole. You know, like my first instinct, how dare you? But the fact that I was like, I, I thoroughly believed that I probably had Parkinson's at 36 instead. Instead. Yeah. Oh my gosh. And even now, like my finger will twitch and I'm like, okay, well I'm not drinking. So I do have part of, you know, well, but I do that too now. Yeah. I do that too. And then I, I'm reading about everything I've, you know, every like medication I've taken or whatever, like is shaking a side effect. Right. It can't be the four coffees on my desk. Like, it I can't ju- be that. Oh my gosh. So, so today I just realized all week I've been coming in feeling very like sort of wound up more than the usual from my caffeine in the morning. And today I'm like, I, I was like really shaky. And I, I it's only today that I realized I had been out of my regular coffee beans. And so I've been using massive scoops of espresso in my, <laughs> in my coffee maker. So like, maybe that's why I'm shaky. Oh my gosh. I love it. I love it. So what is next for you? What are you doing now? Um, well, I'm still um, working at the same job. Uh, uh-huh. 
that I have. And the book came out uh, a little over two years ago now. And I've been really fortunate to do a lot of uh, speaking about this, about my story, about, you know, sort of it's in, you know, intersection with um, when I was in the in the psych hospital, as bad and miserable as it was. um, Again, one of the main reasons I think that I uh, have been fortunate enough not to relapse yet is that um, yet I'm not planning to um, is that uh, I was I think I was appropriately diagnosed with major depressive disorder and I was given appropriate medication for that. And I had, you know, the doctors there thought I had been self-medicating that depression since I was a kid with the food and that's the line I tried to draw in the book. And so I've been able to talk a fair amount about that. I think there are a lot of, you know, more we talk about the more people sort of identify with, with what's happening. We think there's something wrong, you know, that they, that we've got this thing that's different than everybody else, but it's a lot more common. So my whole thing is I want to, you know, smash the stigma around this stuff because it's, it's, you know, Ask the former Surgeon General, who was the first Surgeon General that I developed a crush on because he came out and said, you know, addiction is a brain disease. It's a disease of the brain, like coronary disease is a disease of the heart. Mm-hmm. And until the first we start... Surgeon General, you had a crush on. So you've had multiple crushes on Surgeon General. <laughs> no, I haven't since. It was my first Surgeon General crush, First and though. only. <laughs> first and only. I should have said first and only, yeah. And, um, and so... Um, you know, in the legal industry, there's been a lot around it. And there's actually been a task force that recommended um, all these actions around combating these issues in the industry. And, and number the number one thing is to, to break the stigma. Yeah. So I've been speaking at law firms, at law schools, bar associations, but uh, women's groups, uh, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it is um, about this and just really trying to uh, raise awareness. So I want to continue to do that. Um and, uh, I will sort of, you know, take it as it comes, hopefully yeah. be getting more and more active in it. Well, um, I think one of the things that's so important to realize, and for anyone that's listening, that's, you know, on the other side of this, when I outed myself as a sober person of, you know, recovery, the number of people that wrote me back right? and said, me too, eight years sober, me too, six years sober. Right? I was like, what, you? You know, yes! everyone, this is a community where if you say, I am struggling, that everyone will grab you and put oh, yeah. you in and yep. support you. And and I think the stigma, like, I don't get it. Why, why is there a stigma? Because everyone that is on the other side of this, and I guess it's just... It's admitting I, a weakness. I don't know, but everyone is like the sober people in my world are the best people I know. Absolutely. And they're like a much better version of themselves now, you know, <laughs> right. but, um, but no, I think the stigma goes back to when, you know, the begin. you know, who knows how long when it was just viewed as, you know, you would get drunk or you do whatever. It was embarrassing. It was on, you know, unappealing to look at. It was not, nobody had done any studies to realize that this thing was something actually living in your brain and had to do with your brain chemistry. You know, like people talk about having, you know, I see people like my husband who drinks like, you know, very, very infrequently and and not much. And he's got a a stop button in his brain. His brain says, I've had enough. Like my brain didn't have a stop button. There was no, you know, mechanism in me once I picked up a drink that was ever going to stop me, you know? Um, and I think it was just construed of maybe some of the behaviors around it made it, you know, meant that it was viewed as a weakness. It was seen as a moral failing. I mean, the least moral things I've ever done in my life, I did under the influence. Um, but that's not the, that's the disease. That's not me. I'm not an immoral person. Um, what do you think about the whole culture now uh, around, you know, romanticizing booze? Oh, I mean, it makes is me so, insane. It makes me insane, too, especially the the mommy culture. Oh. Like, mommy needs a drink. And I'm like, yeah, you're damn right. Mommy needs a drink. Like it is like being a mom is like the worst and best thing ever in the world. But yeah, the whole like acceptance of 
you know, run and wine, mother and wine. Yoga and wine. Yoga and wine. Yoga and goats, apparently. There's goat yoga. <laughs> yeah, I have a friend who just did that last weekend. Oh, my gosh. I don't even want to um, know. No. Yeah. If I'm if I'm doing yoga with goats, I'll probably drink again. So I should probably not <laughs> I, do I think I – yeah, yeah. There's no way I'm doing <laughs> yoga with a goat unless I've somehow gotten drunk again. Right. That's for right. sure. But what is – you know, I hate to be like such a downer. No. Because I see it on Instagram and – you know, I'm like, I just have to unfollow this account now because I just. But- you should, yeah. <sighs> you should start following the accounts I follow because they're all like they all call that stuff out on Instagram all the time really? because it makes so many people upset because it's normalizing uh, binge drinking, which is incredibly dangerous behavior, and it's normalizing um, unhealthy drinking habits. It's it, it is. Um, it's the mommy juice thing uh, a wine called mommy juice. And, you know, we look now at uh, the, at the studies that show that, you know, women are drinking easily, you know, at rates comparable to men now and to, and abusing alcohol rates comparable to men. And why didn't that happen before? Well, in part because women are now everywhere men are right in the workplace and, and whatever. But but also women are being targeted. Women are being targeted by marketers. It is all it's to me. I mean, you know, the cigarette companies targeted kids. Yeah. You know, the winemakers target women and, you know, and others. And I think um, that there there needs to be more and there are more and more studies, you know, telling us the risks that we uh, are in for if we are drinking, if certainly if we were drinking in the way, um, you know, that, that the people who are promoting wine yoga think we should be drinking, it's dangerous. Right. It's right. dangerous to our health. Like well, full stop. What's really, what's really interesting is time hop on my phone will show me a photo from, you know, four years ago and it'll be me with a martini and it's like Friday night earned mm-hmm. it. Hashtag I'll do better tomorrow or something. And, <laughs> you know, and I see that and I cringe and I was like, wow, I was a part of this because I was trying to justify my behavior. Yeah. And the way that a whole group of people justify their shitty behavior is by like forming together and printing T-shirts about it. And I yeah. was doing yeah. that. You know, I even posted my ki- my son at the time, I guess he was four. My husband had said, hey, go get drinks. For dinner and my son went into the bar and got a bottle of yellowtail which was the cheap wine i drank and he handed it to me i drank yellowtail by the case <laughs> yes because it's 5.99 a bottle that's and I bought, yes. I bought the double bottles yeah. yeah oh my god but he handed me a bottle my four-year-old and yeah course, that was so funny you know oh boy I mean, yeah i posted it on instagram and it came up last year at some point and i was like Oh my gosh, I can't believe I, one, I posted that. Two, why did no one say shame on you? Three, which is really weird because yeah. on social media, people are really quick People, people are into shaming. But yeah, I mean, I was part of that culture just trying to cover up my own issues. Yeah, well, and, and it perpetuates itself, right? Because the more you become part of that culture, the more wine you're buying and the more you're normalizing mm-hmm. it. It's it's yeah. really this like self, a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. So, Lisa, this podcast is called The Same 24 Hours, and it was born out of the idea that we all have the same 24 hours a day, but it's what we do with those particular 24 hours that leads to our greatest health and happiness and success. So I like to ask my guests, like, what is something that you do on a daily basis that you think makes your 24 hours great? Well, the most important thing I do every 24 hours is not pick up a drink or drug, but something I've recently started doing. And I think it's in response to, um, I know it's in response to getting up in the morning and seeing all kinds of crazy news and feeling worry and whatever around that. I now, before I start my work day and I do it, I actually put an Instagram post up about this when I started it. Um, I just, before I get online in the office, whatever, I put on my headphones and I pick one song and I just like rock out. (laughs) Uninterrupted, and I air drum, and I get myself like happy. That's very Tony Robbins of you. Is it? I've never even read Tony Robbins. Oh man, yeah, Tony Robbins is all about changing your state. So like, 
Yeah. Just, oh, yeah. Yeah. Like whatever it takes to just change your emotional state to something different. And so that's, he calls it priming. So he like primes his day. So it's yeah. Similar. Yeah. You're like a, um, a I like, rock yeah. music. Yeah. I'd like to say I start by meditating every day, but. I, I was scared I, you were going to say that. Yeah. I, <laughs> I have to say I, uh. I, I get it. I, I do it as much as I do it, which is not religiously. And um, yeah, I, I wish I could say I do it all the time. I don't. But, you know, the rocking out, that's a form of meditation. It really is. It is. Like, I get lost in it. I feel yeah. like anything I get lost in, like for you, probably running, you know, mm. um, <laughs> is a form of meditation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Lisa, I really enjoyed this. This was so fun. And thank you for your work and, and your book. Guys, this, the book is Girl Walks Out of a Bar. You've got to read it. It will have <laughs> you. I mean, it was so it was so funny, but not funny. And real and so i'm very thankful for you thank you so much meredith what an honor to be on i really appreciate it if you're interested in joining our group grateful sobriety please do so we will welcome you with open arms all we request is a desire to be a sober person to quit drinking this is not one year no beer this is not a 30-day quit but if that's what it takes to get you to where you need to be then we are open to that as well the group is a secret Facebook group, meaning no one can tell you are in it except the people who are in the group. And I promise if someone is in that group and you bump into them in there, it's okay. They will support you and be there for you in more ways than you probably can even imagine. It's been a wonderful gift being sober. It's a bigger gift that I have to be able to talk about it and a platform upon which to do it. So I'm incredibly thankful for Lisa and for Sarah Hepla and for Annie Grace and others who have talked with me about sobriety and who continue to hold the torch high to break the stigma. So if you're interested, check out gratefulsobriety.com and come join us.